You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Strange times have descended on the CME and I guess everyone else. Ben, the governor of Montana over the weekend, officially closed all schools, at least for the next two (laughs) weeks. Uh, I would anticipate it might be a little bit longer closure than that, but that came after six positive tests for coronavirus in the state, two of which are right here in Missoula County, where you and I both live. Meanwhile, the CDC has recommended an end to gatherings of 50 people or more for the next eight weeks, which obviously has far-reaching ramifications in the sports world, some of which we will talk about coming up on today's show. And the CDC has also recommended that we all keep our asses home and self-isolate, which means we're all cooped up with our children right now. It also means, Ben, I've got you on the Skype machine. How's your self-isolation going? You know, already I can see some some cracks starting to appear around here, especially when my daughter yesterday told me that she was sick of playing with her sister. And I was like, oh, dude, you don't you you don't even know what's coming. Yeah. You're going to get so sick of that girl. She's going to get so sick of you. And uh, we're all just going to have to deal with it. Interesting, though, trying to imagine – Everybody's kind of dealing with some version of the same thing, you know, like everybody is dealing with the the uncertainty and the situation changes so rapidly day to day. Imagine if you also on top of all that had to worry about training and cutting weight because maybe you're going to fight this weekend somewhere in the world against some other person. Yeah, like, I have no idea how you would even approach that and try and like I was just looking at the MMA headlines uh, this morning and they're still out here signing fights, announcing fights for future events. And I was just like, man, how could you accept a fight right now and get into like a training camp scenario, even thinking that maybe you would fight on this assigned date in this assigned location. And a lot of the gyms are closing too. I mean, you see a lot of the prominent MMA gyms announcing that they're going to be closing at least for a couple of weeks. We don't know. I mean, in the next couple of days, the situation from the government, you know, basically, encouraging people to stay home that is starting to change and get a little bit more aggressive we don't know where this is headed one of the things i mentioned this in my mailbag today one of the things that i know you can uh, relate to that has been really interesting is you know the athletic has done a really good job of keeping everybody informed and making all their offices work from home and shutting down on all kind of work travel and uh, really staying in contact with all of us and yet in our main athletic slack channel it, there's an update every day that shows like here's what all the sports organizations we're doing or recover are currently doing. And for like, you know, a week now, it's been the list goes like NBA suspended play, Major League Baseball canceled spring training, pushed back opening day, English Premier League suspended play, uh, NASCAR suspended races all the way down the list. And then MMA, it says UFC will continue to hold events without fans or media access. Yeah. Which, as we've talked about before, is one of those moments where you kind of reflect and go, when are these other people going to realize that we're all insane? Is this the is this the time? Yeah. Is this the time when everybody gets a chance to look at us and realize, oh, wait, the combat sports people, specifically the MMA people, they have lost their damn minds. Yeah. No, yeah. I think this is the uh, I think this is the time. I think we're living in it. I think we're living in those times right now. What, how exciting. What an exciting time to be alive. <laughs> I want to make a note on sound quality here before we go any further. This week, we're obviously doing this via via Skype, uh, but I hope that we can figure out a method to improve the sound quality for all the listeners out there when we have to do these remote CMEs, especially if we're going to be in separate locations for a while, which it seems like we probably are. Um, I've got a couple ideas we're going to try to play around with, so hopefully you know, we can maybe even give that a try this week for the Power Hour uh, or, or stuff moving forward. But for now we're, we're going to, we're rolling the dice with Skype here. We're going to push forward with, uh, 
with what we can do and see if we can get an entire episode of the CME on the books here for this week. And then uh, we'll start experimenting with some different technologies as we go forward. We got music this week from our friend, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you guys know by now, that's the word the with an A, the fifth element. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Kevin Lee was doing okay out there against Charles Oliveira until he wasn't. We'll talk about that and where both men go from here in the Shark Tank lightweight division. And in round number two, surprise, surprise, the UFC remains defiant in the face of coronavirus, saying it will forego uh, restrictions and carry on until the government shuts it down. But dude, why? We'll talk about it. And in round number three, I have no idea if we're supposed to all act like they're going to be fights this weekend, but we'll talk about the chaos that has descended on the UFC's planned event in London and just what the actual fuck is going on. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Whoa, that was a really spooky listener mail. You, well, I felt like I got to put a little little something on it to reflect our current conditions. Thank you. Thank you. Also, when you say you're looking at some audio options, is this when you finally debuted the Ben Folk soundboard that you've been collecting so you can phase me out? Yeah, I don't even I, need you. I'll just push a button when I need someone to say listener mail or when I need someone to uh, make fun of my outfit. My honestly, jet. I'd be super into it. Yeah, you could just sit at home, cash the checks. Yeah. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Brian Mills, who writes, Man, how lame was that Nikki Thrills, Johnny Walker's fight? Certainly wasn't what we were expecting or maybe hoping for. No, no, it wasn't. And this was a fight that I think uh, fell victim to raised expectations, did it not? Yeah, a little bit. I also wonder, and maybe we'll end up talking more about this, but when you have some of these fights in the empty arena, Nikki Thrills is going out there in brazil to fight johnny walker guy who likes to bring a little bit of wild and crazy excitement it's not like you have to worry about getting booed if you keep taking the guy down it's not like that's gonna it's not like you you know the crowd's gonna rise and roar to its feet whenever johnny walker lands a good strike so maybe that stuff plays a little bit of a role yeah i mean are you trying to say that uh maybe you can get a little bit into some more strategy if you're not going to be affected by the by the jeerings of the live crowd i hadn't thought of that that's actually a pretty good point and not only just like you being affected, but the referee might not be affected to consider a stand-up as quickly if there's no crowd booing. You yeah. know, there's no like that. There's no immediate like feedback loop going on there. So maybe you just get to settle in and have a different kind of fight. Yeah, and Nikita Krilov certainly went out there with a game plan that was not going to be a crowd pleaser. So you know, he's he lucked out there, not essentially not having a crowd. But he fought, I guess. The kind of fight that uh, you would fight if you wanted to beat Johnny Walker, take him down, keep him off his vertical base, keep him from getting into any of those crazy standing attacks that we've seen be so devastating from him in the past. Uh, and in so doing, he manages to grind out this unanimous decision win. Uh, but is this is this a win that helps Nikita Krilov at all in the, in the light heavyweight division? I mean, obviously, we're dealing with a very... Uh, shallow division there obviously so it doesn't take as many wins in a row as it does to sneak into title condition contention and say the lightweight division he was he came in off the loss to uh glover Tashira in september of last year he's now uh two and two since he came back to the ufc after uh he didn't re-sign with the company back in 2016 and then went on a tear fighting mostly in russia in various organizations over there beat the big homie manny newton beat fabio maldonado at fight nights global then he comes back to the ufc and he's been a little bit hit and miss but he goes out there against a guy in johnny walker that i think a lot of people have been forecasting as you know one of the bright future stars in this division and he does what he needs to do to win was it impressive though ben uh not really but i also wonder how much of anything that happens in this weird period right now will we remember will will be enough to change anybody standing in a division because it seems like any day now we, this could all just stop for a little while and if it does i don't know 
by the time it restarts, are people going to be like, okay, but remember that last event that we had in a weird empty arena? Like, where does that, what does that do for Nikita, Nikita Kurilov's uh, rankings? I don't think that we're really going to be focusing on it. I think, like, even if you go out there and have an awesome fight right now, there's a good chance that by the time this all gets sorted and we feel like we can return to business as usual, people have forgotten about it. So you think we're just going to hit the reset button? That everything that happens in the, in the, in the lockdown and the isolation just, it stays there? Yeah, just like a uh, wild ass trip to Vegas. The debt record goes to zero, uh, mass chaos, and then the smoke clears and we have no idea what the top 15 at light heavyweight looks like anymore. And everybody has to rear in their place. Wow. Well, um, we got a little bleak there in the middle, but you know who would think that that was good news? Walker, Johnny, De Silva, Barra, D'Souza, a.k.a. Johnny Walker, fast rising UFC lightweight, light heavyweight prospect until his last two fights. Starts out 17-3, and 4-0 in the UFC, and now we've got a situation, Ben, where Johnny Walker has lost two fights in a row, one to Corey Anderson and now to Nikita Krylov, both of which I think were fights we expected him to win on the, on the way into those fights. What kind of commentary do you think that this gives on his future fitness as a contender? You know, he's still going to be a guy, I think, who is fun, exciting to watch, exciting personality, all that stuff. Maybe we just need to resettle our expectations. He rose up pretty quickly. We got really excited. Then a couple losses. You know, he went to TriStar for this one and is kind of trying to rebuild over there. Says that getting away from a bad situation as far as like coaching and training wise. So maybe he needs a little more time before that can actually bear fruit. But also maybe the rest of us need to realize that uh, we got hyped just because we saw a couple few fun fights. And uh, it takes more than that, especially once you get up to the top half or so of that division. Yeah. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from the cheeseburger walrus who writes with Oliveira, Moicano and Burns all getting highlight real wins on Saturday. Are we starting to see the real impact of fighting at your quote unquote natural weight discourse? Well, I mean, I know we like to go back kind of retroactively and insert that line, that, that kind of conventional wisdom whenever we see somebody doing well with it. But here's one where, yeah, like, there's a couple of instances I think we've seen just over the past year or so that make that case pretty well. And especially here's Charles Oliveira fighting a guy in Kevin Lee who has gone between lightweight and welterweight and really struggled to make lightweight. And yet he doesn't seem like he's really suffering from a size disadvantage in that fight. Yeah. I mean, I think you could say that that was the case of, of all three guys who got the wins, right? You know, Moicano, Burns, and Oliveira all moved up from from lower divisions. They're all obviously – Really successful this week. Three stoppages for each one of those guys. Two of them in the first round, and of course Oliveira uh, in the third for Kevin Lee against Kevin Lee. But I mean, I don't know, man. Uh, you know, this I could see it going either way. This is either a situation where we're going to go ahead and cherry pick these uh, these positive results and say that this is a, a an example of of you know not cutting as much weight. You have more energy. It's good for you. You go out there and win. And then I think we also see guys go out, go out in their, you know, quote unquote natural weights. And they just don't have the, you know, the, the size or the power advantages that they had it in lighter weight classes. And then maybe we start saying it's, it's not a great idea. So, uh, well, clear, clearly it's healthier to do it this way. And so I would like to encourage everyone to do that. I just don't know if we have enough data yet to really render a decision on, uh, what's the most competitive thing to do. Well, and don't you also think a lot of it depends on fighting style? Like if you're somebody yeah. who relied on being the bigger man or being the harder hitter or something like that, then you go up a weight class closer to your natural weight and maybe the advantages you would just come to assume you would always have aren't there anymore. Whereas if you're more of a tactician or a technician who does not rely on just being able you know, to take somebody down maybe and flatten them out or just take everybody else's best punch and knock them out with one of yours – that kind of stuff maybe won't translate as well. But if you were somebody like Charles Oliveira, who has a great submissions game, you know, as long as he can keep from just being out-wrestled by bigger opponents, he can still put that to work. Wait a second. Are you trying to say styles make fights? <sighs> you know, I wasn't, but I guess I am. I heard that somewhere before. I've heard. We always, we always loop around. Also, though, anything could happen in a fight. Styles like make sure. fights. You know what? You know what else I've heard? Don't leave it in the hands of the judges. Huh. Okay. That's a new one. I'm going to, I'm going to note that one down. Yeah. Was jot that, jot just, that down. Was it, was it do leave fights in the hands of the judges? Or? No. Last thing you want to do is ever oh, okay. leave the fight in the hands of the judges because okay. uh, apparently they just can't be counted on to do the right Got thing. Got it. 
Got it. Next question this week comes to us from Douglas Daddio. So I assume he's writing to us from the 50s. Yeah. 1950s here. He writes, how sad were you guys to watch Damian and Maya get TKO'd by Gilbert Burns on a scale of very sad to very, very sad? I would put myself at very, very sad, he writes. Yeah, I was pretty damn sad. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing we talked about a little bit uh, last week. Might have been on the Power Hour, might have been on this show. And then I wrote about it when I had to pick up uh, Fernando Pratas' self-branded preview piece for this this event. It kind of felt like we were going to keep throwing Damian Maya out there until uh, we got an ugly result for him and uh, just kind of keep serving him up tougher and tougher challenges, especially in the last two where, you know, he came in against Anthony Rocco Martin last June and uh, Martin at that point had been streaking. I think he'd maybe won four fights in a row. Damian Maya beats him by majority decision. So then they give him Ben Askren and what was a battle between, you know, two obviously master grapplers, but at the same time, Askren came in, uh, on the heels of that loss to uh, Jorge Masvidal. And so this seemed like maybe the UFC wanted to put him out there with Ben Ask- or to with uh, Damian Maia to give him a chance to get back to his winning ways. Of course, uh, Maia chokes him out in the third round. And now we get Gilbert Burns at this fight night in Brasilia over the weekend. And you think you could make the argument Gilbert, Gilbert Burns at 33 years old and, and moving up from 155 pounds is like a younger, more athletic, better rounded version of Damian Maia because Burns also has... Uh, you know, pretty highly decorated Brazilian jiu-jitsu background. And it felt like we were just going to keep throwing Damian Maia into deeper and deeper water until he got himself in some trouble. And that's exactly what happened here. Yeah. It didn't feel at all at, all at any point like we were doing a thing for Damian Maia. We're like, hey, we love you and you're a, a great figure in the sport and we know you're getting older and not really in title contention so much anymore. So we want to just give you some fun fights that won't get you killed. Instead, it seemed like they were doing the thing where we're like, Hey, you still have a name worth taking for somebody else. So like, let's go out there and and put you in one of these fights until you get knocked out. He catches that left hook, goes straight down. And yeah, to me, the most encouraging thing to come out of that was Demi Maya saying afterwards that he feels like the next one's probably going to be his last one. And call him for either Diego Sanchez or Donald Cerrone. And when, as soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, the first one. Let's do Diego Sanchez. So that way, lower possibility that either one of you will get hurt. And hey, who knows? Maybe you could both call it a career after that one. And everybody goes home happy-ish. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, would it kill us to give Damian Maya a graceful exit from the sport? It seemed like uh, they were dead set against it. Or maybe it was Damian Maya. I don't know where this comes from. I don't know what kind of matchups he's been looking for in his last several fights. But it just seemed like... As you said, we could have figured out a, a, a graceful way to kind of phase Damian Maya out of this thing and send him out on uh, on everyone's shoulders instead of at the, the end of a Gilbert Burns punch. So and I, I think that's a little bit weird, too, because like, uh, you know, you look around the, the landscape of the sport and it seems like everybody loves Damian Maya. Even people that Damian Maya beats seem to love Damian Maya. Yeah. And then it just seemed like we were, uh, I guess it's just the, the, the cruel pragmatism of the fight game, man. We're out here still trying to use Damian Maya to, to put over somebody else. Yeah. UFC doesn't have any time for the soft hearted business about who people actually like. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from the capital G goat. See what he did there? Or he's he or she? Capital G, greatest of all time. He writes, Juicy, Juicy A Formiga and and the Assassin Baby had themselves a pretty good flyweight scrap down there at the granddaddy of them all, the Genesio Nilsson Nelson in Brasilia. See, this person has listened to the show before. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what's coming through here. Uh, is this a good example of why the UFC should keep flyweight open for business? And is Brandon Moreno now a legit contender discourse? You know, as I was looking over the UFC Brasilia card, Ben, and I saw this one uh, as the uh, the featured prelim there at the end of the, uh, you know, what, what turned out to be the end of the uh, of the prelims that got broadcast everywhere because there's nothing else on television. But uh I was looking at this fight. I was like, you know what? They should have just put the damn title on the line here. Just do a three-rounder, featured prelim. Whoever wins this is the new flyweight champ because almost having anybody carrying the strap around would be better than the vacant title that we have now as as the bed that was made by Davis and Figueredo when he missed weight against Joseph Benavides and still went out there and won. But uh, I guess, you know, you got a, a good entertaining 125-pound scrap out of it. Maybe Brandon Moreno a bit of an upset over Juicy A Formiga. I don't know. But uh, you buying this guy as the uh, as maybe a, a number one contender at this point for a vacant title? Yeah, well, I mean, you wonder exactly what it takes for anybody to end up as a number one contender at this point in that weight class. But 
Yeah, he's fun to watch. I'll say that. A lot of fun to watch. I, I enjoy seeing him. I do kind of love your idea. Now I'm picturing a scenario where just before the fight happens, uh, the jumbo screen lights up with Dana White's face because obviously he's not going down to Brazil for this thing. Are you kidding? There's a goddamn pandemic on. But he he speaks to the empty arena announcing the decision just before the fight starts that this will now be a fight for the vacant UFC flyweight title. Good luck, gentlemen. Yeah, and yeah. Then, and then the screen goes black and both guys just have to absorb that knowledge and right before the referee tells them to fight. I mean, then we're having some fun with this whole dystopian future bullshit. I mean, yeah, if we're going to be out here in bizarro world anyway, we might as well, right? Spice it up a little. Throw, throw a yeah. title out there. Two men enter, one like champion the- leaves lean into his natural tendency to be the Lex Luthor of the sports world and just go all the way with it. Brandon Moreno at this point, 26 years old. So he's got a whole lot of living left to do. He hasn't lost since he got beat by Alexander Pantoja uh, in May of 2018. He's got three wins without a loss. And of course, mixed in there is the split draw to Asker or Oscar Oscarov nailed it. Uh, last September, that was at the, uh, when we finally got to see Yair Rodriguez and Jeremy Stevens get it done. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, man, I, I, who let's, let's say you, you say, okay, you give the nod to Brandon Moreno here, the assassin baby. He's going to be in your, uh, flyway title fight. Who does he fight? Does he fight Davis and Figueredo? Despite the fact that, uh, Figueredo kind of caused all this mess with his, when he missed weight against Joe B. I think the most likely scenario is Davis and Figueredo and Joe B running it back, don't you? I guess. I mean, it doesn't feel quite as fun as throwing throwing the assassin baby out there. Well, unless we go full tournament, in which case the assassin baby is my dark horse pick, I think that's probably how we end up. But then, hey, whoever does win that vacant title, they're going to need to fight somebody once they're champion, right? So don't give up hope for the assassin baby. He's young. All right, last question this week comes to us from Jack Delton, who writes, Fellas, with the fighting and most shit shut down, how about an old-fashioned tips for the well-rounded fight fan update? Ain't seen one of those in a while. Hit us with some good reads or podcasts while we're locked up. Ben, what you got for the kids at home? All right, I realize that this is probably old news to everybody else, but you know, you and I, since we have children, and uh, it takes us a long time to get around to watching movies, I just watched Uncut Gems last oh, night. yeah. That is one of the more stressful movie watching experiences I've ever had, and I recommend it. Just know that going in. That sounds perfect for our current situation, a real stressful movie to watch, huh? I will say you're at least – you're stressed about completely different stuff for a couple hours there. Really good movie, uh, different and original, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. Adam Sandler is actually really good in it, and I'm not normally a huge Adam Sandler fan. but. Yeah, I, I I recommend taking a minute, take a break from the whole fear of the end of the world happening, and then just get wrapped up in one guy's completely self-created personal crisis. And uh, it's a, at least spice up the anxiety in your life. You know, get a different kind of anxiety in there. The other thing, though, if you if you want to go the other direction, one thing that I recently started doing because I'm an idiot is I went back and read the it's actually from a book of short stories called steel and other stories by richard matheson and one of the stories is the one that real steel remember real steel the movie with the robots fighting robot Uh, boxing i believe you and i saw that in the theater together my friend yeah well it's the story that that one is based on only in his story it takes place in a future where wars have killed so many humans that they feel like we can't in good conscience harm what few humans we have left with boxing and so we have (laughs) robots box and that's what will take the place for us in this kind of ruined post-war landscape and that one as we've said about a few other things on our movie club recently hits different right about now yeah that's that's a very quaint idea that that at some point we would be like you know what this is just too much human destruction yeah we we like the destruction can't spare the humans what else can we do i know robots now, I have not seen Uncut Gems, but the, to hear you talk about I do want to see it. And to hear you talk about it, it sounds like maybe this is one of those movies where Adam Sandler reminds us that he's actually a good actor. Yeah, that's absolutely. What, that's what's happening here. That's, uh, that sounds interesting. One thing that we should mention is that we are, in terms of tips for the well-rounded fight fan, we are all right now at this juncture supposed to be reading True Grit. 
uh, and also watching the movie True Grit for the Co-Main Event Podcast movie slash book club that's coming up over on the Patreon site. That will be a week from Wednesday. So if anybody wants to jump in on that, that's uh, that that could fill some time right there. Yeah. And then uh, we'll have a podcast for you, hopefully, you know, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, uh, a week from, from Wednesday. So there's that. Um, I probably have uh, – I know I've talked about this on the on various platforms, but I just wanted to give another shout out to the book Every Man a Menace by Patrick Hoffman, which is a uh, a pretty good crime thriller about a, a a big deal over the club drug Molly that goes sideways and and gets a bunch of people killed, and you get to experience also pretty stressful, I would say. So you know that going in, if you're looking for like lighthearted reading, I don't know if this would be the thing for you, but uh, but you can uh, you can check that out. It's really well done. It's written from a bunch of different perspectives. And uh, I don't know that I've ever read a book exactly like it before. Every Man a Menace by Patrick Hoffman. That's my tip for the well-rounded fight fan for right now. Anyway, that is going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. You might as well. I mean, we, we all got time. We're all just sitting around. So sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Uh, maybe check out the Patreon. We got lots of content coming every week for you over there. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. All right, Ben, I'm going to start this one off with another piece of listener mail from the Corgi King, because I think it's going to jumpstart our conversation here in round number one. We will actually try to talk about a fight. Corgi King writes, I don't want to take anything away from the win that Du Bronx got over Kevin Lee, but do you get the sense that Lee sort of gave this fight away? Right before getting submitted, he was getting the better of the exchanges on the feet and then shot in with his head down against the guy with the most UFC submissions. I still think Lee has all the talent in the world, but seems to have a lot of mental missteps. Ben, do you think this is accurate? Because it's kind of seemed like uh, when I watched the fight, Kevin Lee did in fact get get careless for just a minute, put his head right there in the middle where... Uh, where Charles Oliveira could get to it when he when he tried to suck up that single leg. And when you do that against a guy with the submissions like Oliveira, you get tapped out. I don't know, man. I don't think he was necessarily doing so great on the feet even before that. I mean, Oliveira was having no problem landing. And uh, it, you know, Kevin Lee, to me, it seemed like never really had a whole lot of pop in this fight and spent a lot of the, the time in the first couple rounds with his back to the fence getting pieced up by Oliveira, the best chance he had was when he could get him down and kind of hold him there and shut down the the bottom submissions game from Oliveira, who, you know, he's creative and crafty enough and not scared to take chances. So it's a tough guy to deal with once you get him on the ground. But the best chance you have, especially as like a guy with Kevin Lee's skill set, is to flatten him out and keep him flat on his back and then do some work from there, try to wear him down and then go to work. But I, I didn't think he was doing spectacularly on the feet. And so also the the way he ended up getting himself choked out, it wasn't that I think that he just got careless. He took that kick to the body, and I don't think he liked it. I think he was already feeling some of the effects of the, the strikes. He got kicked in the body and immediately just went, okay, enough of this shit, takedown. And in that impatience, because he didn't want to stand there any longer, he put himself in a bad situation just because he was that desperate to get the fight to the ground and it hadn't been going well. I wonder how much of the struggles were uh, dedicated to the weight cut because Kevin Lee did miss weight in this fight. Again, he's missed weight at 155 pounds before. 158.5 was where he came in for this fight, and it was sort of one of those deals where uh, you know, he, he was not going to make the weight, and it was kind of collectively decided either by his camp or by the, the regulators here that he wasn't going to try to cut any more weight, which is usually an indication where everyone looked around and and thought, uh, you know, uh, this would be unsafe if we continue to make this guy cut weight or if I continue to try to cut weight. And that, you know, is an indicator that maybe this guy really wrung himself out trying to make 155. And so maybe he just didn't have the energy or the pop or the, uh, uh, the get up and go out there once he had, had struggled that much with, with the weight cut. I, I don't know, but he did, uh, he did make a pretty big mental lapse there. Maybe he did get hurt by the body kick, as you said. And, and so, 
uh, just made an error in the takedown, and that's all it takes to get tapped out by Charles Oliveira. Uh, what did you make of the uh, the bizarre scene immediately following the stoppage in this, where it seemed like maybe an inc- unconscious version of Kevin Lee had tapped out and then immediately protested once the uh, the fight actually got stopped? Yeah, I think that that was just a moment of confusion, which can happen when you get choked out. As a guy who'd been choked out a couple few times before, there's that moment right afterwards, especially where if you just get choked out for just a second and you get let go, and you you kind of don't even know that that part happened. It's very easy for you to believe that, uh, like in your brain, there was no gap in time there. It all was just a continuous moment, and it was like from the last part you remember, which might have been just before you had to tap out, to the the part where you currently find yourself coming to, and you just. To you, it's you know, like when you do get uh, choked out sometimes in jujitsu, the last thing you remember is you're in a choke, you're defending, you feel like, all right, this isn't a great spot, but I'm working on it. And then the next thing you know, three or four people are crowded around you looking down on you. And that's when you, you at first it's very confusing, and then you kind of go, ah, fuck. But here was one where he felt like, okay, this fight is still going on. I still got my hands on the guy. And uh, I can understand how in that moment of confusion, you would not realize that, that you had tapped out because especially you got money on the line and everything else. If you're going to tap out to that choke, it's going to be at the last minute. It's going to be at the, the very – you're going to hold on as long as you possibly can before you decide you have to tap. So it makes sense that in the interval between when you tap and when the ref moves in, that's when you could lose consciousness and that little piece of time could just be missing from your brain. So I don't know. I Like seeing Jorge Masvidal go out there and criticize Kevin Lee pretty harshly for it, I thought eh, that's a little bit uncalled for because that it's not entirely his fault. And it seemed like – once it was really explained to him that then it wasn't like he continued for the rest of the evening complaining that he hadn't ever tapped out. He, he saw the replay. He could see it just like everybody else. So uh, I give him a little bit of slack on that. Yeah, it wasn't like uh, he was trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. He wasn't trying to do like the soft tap, the one tap, just to try to yeah. get out of the choke. He tapped extremely vigorously, and we all saw it. So it wasn't as though Kevin Lee was out there, you know, trying to do something sneaky. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. What about Charles Oliveira here? Because obviously this is his seventh win in a row at 155 pounds. You could argue Kevin Lee, the biggest victim on that list, though he's also defeated Clay Guida, uh, Jim Miller, Nick Lentz, and Jared Gordon, uh, among others, over that that stretch. Uh, I noticed heading into this that he was he was ranked much lower in the lightweight top 15 than Kevin Lee was headed into this fight. Uh, Dubronx is 30 years old at this point, and obviously competing in this division where uh, – you know, you you got to uh, you got to wait a little bit, no matter who you are. If your name's not Tony Ferguson, Habib Nurmagomedov, Conor McGregor, or maybe Justin Gaethje, so what do you think that this win does to the prospects of Charles Oliveira? Is it time to, I guess, sit up and and recognize him as a legit lightweight contender at this point? Uh, anytime anybody puts together this kind of a streak in that tough a division, then yeah, I think you got to give the guy his respect. I also think though. That if I'm Charles Oliveira, here's where I would really want to be looking at how I can improve my situation. Because fighting just kind of whoever they got and, uh, hey, we're coming down to Brazil. How about take somebody else on who is in the bottom half of the rankings? Yeah, okay, sure. Like At this point, though, you got to be looking at who is way up there in the rankings where a win over them would really get you somewhere. The problem is, though, like you said, like, Right now, we've got a UFC lightweight title fight booked that who knows if it'll happen. And if it does, will it have to be on the goddamn moon? And then after that happens, you got Conor McGregor, who seems like at any point he could snap his fingers and get himself a title shot at this point from the UFC. And then you also got a bunch of other people who are going, hey, but I'm actually deserving and everybody knows that. So what's to become of me? And so the thing that puts Charles Oliveira in this position, kind of similar to guys like Dan Hooker, uh, where you're looking at how you can sort of sneak up the ranks as the guys who feel like they're already at the top are sitting around waiting for their opportunity. And you're kind of trying to climb up from behind them and and get a piece of that. Cause eventually they're going to realize, Hey, I got to fight somebody and you want to try to be that somebody like that's, I think what it's going to take for somebody like Charles Oliveira to really move up there. Otherwise I think he ends up as just somebody who is also in the division with a whole bunch of wins and really great submission records, but nobody is really thinking about him for a title shot. Yeah, he's in a little bit of a tough spot, I think, for a couple of different reasons. First, the guy's been in the UFC for almost a solid decade at this point, came in when he was about 20 years old. And so he's one of these guys where I think the tendency might be to think that maybe we've seen the best 
of Charles Oliveira at this point, and we know what he's capable of. Like, we already have the book written on, on Charles Oliveira. And yet, at the same time, the guy's still young enough that I think you got to give him the opportunity to grow and mature and become a better fighter. And maybe that's what you're seeing here on this on this current win streak. I just think, like, when you say Charles Oliveira to a group of UFC fans, I think we might be, you know, uh, liable or to to think that, oh, I, I know that guy. That's the dude who lost to... Uh, to Max Holloway. That's the dude that lost to Frankie Edgar and Cub Swanson and Don Cerrone and Jim Miller. Like he's, he's a middle of the pack lightweight, if anything. And so, uh, you know, he's got to break out of that predisposition or, or, uh, you know, already, we've already formed the, the, the verdict on this guy in our minds. And, uh, you know, above and beyond that, just sort of like being one of these guys who, uh, seems like he gets the call for, uh, these, these somewhat lower profile fight night events. Uh, you know, the three of his last, five or six fights have all been in Brazil. The other ones have been in Rochester and Milwaukee. So it's not like he's getting the call to come down to Vegas to fight on these high profile fight cards. And so I think you're right. Like he needs to do something to, to, to break into our consciousness, to be one of these guys that we think, uh, that we think of when we think of the title. Otherwise he's going to have to string several more wins together. And in this division at 155 pounds, like you're just not going to win them all. You You can't, you know, unless you're Habib Nurmagomedov up to this point, you're not going to run off 17, 18 wins in a row. So it's a little bit of a tough spot for Charles Oliveira. Speaking of which, though, what do we make of Kevin Lee at this point? Uh, still just 27, so he's got a lot of athletic future ahead of him. One and three in his last four. Of course, the win is the big KO of Gregor Gillespie at UFC 244, which it seemed like had kind of re-energized Kevin Lee's prospects, got him into this fight against Charles Oliveira. Uh, he had just returned from welterweight. Now he misses weight. seems like there's a lot of, uh, not all that great stuff in the ether around Kevin Lee right now at this moment. But at the same time, like, uh, maybe he can take a cue from Charles Oliveira and see that this, this is more of a long game than a sprint. Yeah. Uh, that might be the most optimistic spin you could give him right now. It's like, Hey, look, the, this can happen over a longer timeline than you think, maybe. Also, hearing him and though afterwards say that it might be a while before we see him back in the cage, yeah. a part of me felt like, you know what? Yeah, maybe that's the right thing here. Because he has struggled a little bit trying to find just his permanent home training-wise and uh, had some ups and downs. Missing weight doesn't help you at all. Uh, losing the big fights doesn't help you. And, you know, when he – they played that package, that little pre-fight video package beforehand where he's talking about how he always wanted the toughest fights – I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I'll give you credit for that. You That does seem to be true for you. And also, it seems like you have experienced some of the perils of doing that. So maybe some time off right now wouldn't be the worst thing for him. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. He seemed uh, pretty bummed after this one, pretty uh, pretty shattered to to have lost this fight. So maybe it is time. And then like, yeah, as you said, like a guy who switched camps, he's moved around, he's tried to make changes. And so far, you know, it's it's not... Uh, paying off in a bunch of wins. So maybe he is best off to, to take some time and kind of get himself back together, refocus, uh, reinvent, and then and then come back when he's ready. Uh, do we have Are You Fucking Kidding Me's this week? Oh, shit. I didn't, well, okay, I mean, is, well, is there an Are You Fucking Kidding I mean, Me out there besides the one that will one dominate the, the rest of this show? <laughs> there's one, one big one, Chad. I mean, do we... I think that's basically going to be our entire topic for round two yeah. and maybe even bleeding into round three, perhaps maybe a good, as good a transition as any is to look at the USC's response to coronavirus and yeah. Dana White's comments to ESPN in particular and ask, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? All right, we'll do that over the course of the next two rounds. Round number two is coming up right now. So, Chad, we talked earlier in this show about how the whole coronavirus thing, just in general, has been a rapidly developing situation. I remember last week when I was working on a story about how different MMA promoters uh, and fighters and gyms and everything are responding to it. And it was a tough story to work on because when I started the story that morning, the UFC uh, was still insisting nothing was going to change. Uh, everything I was hearing was saying the UFC was going to look to the NBA and the NHL and, hey, they hadn't suspended their seasons. Everything was fine. By the end of that same day, the NBA had cases of the coronavirus, was suspending the season, and damn Tom Hanks was infected with coronavirus. Yeah. And so 
America has to take it seriously once it threatens to take Tom Hanks away from us. So then, you know, you had the Dana White going on Sports Center. I think he went on there Thursday, basically saying like, hey, we're not panicking. We're working with doctors and technology. Everything's going to go ahead as scheduled. You know, the event in Brazil going to go on without fans, but the event in London next weekend going to go on as planned with fans in the audience. And it's going to be fine because we're, we've got lasers and shit that can take people's temperature when they walk in the door and everything is going to be just fine. And we cast a little bit of doubt on that immediately. And then by Saturday, right after the event, already the situation there has changed. Suddenly it's no longer an option for you to do those events where you plan to. It's not even an option to bring them all back to the apex because the uh, Nevada Athletic Commission has uh, at least temporarily suspended all uh, sort of combat sports operations there. So you can't do that. And still, UFC President Dana White goes on or calls in to Sports Center and straight up says, we will not stop. We won't do anything that we don't absolutely have to do until the government makes us, until there is a complete government shutdown. You know, the fights will go on. Here's his quote. Unless there's a total shutdown of the country where people can't leave their houses and things like that, these fights will happen. We're going to move on. These guys will compete. We'll find venues and we will figure this thing out. I mean, the only thing that's going to stop us is a complete government shutdown where everyone is confined to their homes. Now, that to me is just a staggeringly irresponsible take at this time when what everybody isn't being encouraged to do, whether they're businesses or individuals, is exercise a little personal responsibility in the name of the greater good, like to think of your communities and the society as a whole. And the UFC president is out there kind of like proudly saying, we won't do that. We won't do anything unless you make us. Yeah, it's very weird even for the UFC. I mean, if we yeah. have, if you've been around this sport for a long time, if you've covered the sport, you know that the UFC and Dana White in particular has this kind of stubborn streak, kind of bullheaded uh maybe it's not even a streak, maybe it's like the defining characteristic of the man's personality, I don't know. Uh but like we've seen him do things before Certainly not to this scale, but we've seen, number one, a show must go on mentality in the UFC before where they will yeah. do almost anything to like keep the show going. And up Jeremy to Stevens an, is fighting tonight. Right. I was just going to bring that up. But like even up to and including like moving, what was it, UFC 233 or whatever to uh, to California after John Jones tested positive, uh, you know, bringing in Joe Soto to fight. Uh, TJ Dillashaw at the last minute kind of, uh, and then as you mentioned, we've seen him do stuff like at, just for like a fight night event in Minnesota where Jeremy Stevens got arrested, I think the day of the fight. And he was insistent that they were going to get Jeremy Stevens out of jail so that he could fight. What was it? Eve Edwards, uh, at that yeah. fight night event. And of course that didn't end up happening, but the, but Dana White has this thing where it's almost like once he makes up his mind, he's just not going to change it. And the more, evidence that is brought to him to suggest that maybe that's not a good idea. He just like becomes even more strident in his, uh, in his desire to do the thing that he wanted to do in the, in the first place. But, but this is a much larger scale that of any of those other. So kind of like in retrospect, micro, uh, uh, situations. This is a much bigger macro situation where the UFC is really the only quote unquote mainstream sport going, in a lot of the world at this point. And so it's, it's, it's very strange to see them kind of soldier on. And one other thing that I would bring up is that like, it kind of seems like they keep moving the goalposts. You know, they were, they were talking about how like, Oh, we're, uh, we're working with governments and we are, uh, consulting with doctors and we have all this technology. Well then, you know, the Nevada state athletic commission shortly thereafter comes out and puts a, a temporary freeze on, uh, combat sports in that state until I think what March 27th or March 25th, whenever they're the upcoming Nevada state athletic commission meeting is. And so then <laughs> that obviously made it so the UFC couldn't do these events they wanted to do at the apex. And then suddenly they're like, okay, well we're, we're going to do them somewhere else. So it's like, Oh, I thought you were working with governments and then the government yeah. decides that you can't have the fight in Nevada. So now you're going to go work with a different government, like work with a, a oh. government that's more, uh, uh, in tune with your with your wants and desires, like I kind of don't understand why the the goalposts keep getting moved. Well, I mean, I think you do understand why the goalposts keep getting moved. It's because the goal was never to work with governments. The goal is to keep these fights going and keep making fucking money. And I wrote about this in my column about it, but it seems like just a little bit too much irony that the UFC, especially 
Dana White and the Fertitas, when they uh, owned the UFC altogether, their claim always was like how we saved this sport from the mismanagement of the previous owner was while they went running away from regulation, you know, when New York State said, hey, you can't have UFC 12 here and then we'll last minute take it down to Dothan, Alabama, and we'll just look for any commission wild enough to let us do this thing at a time when other commissions are saying they don't want us to do this thing. We ran toward regulation. We tried to fix the regulation. We tried to fix the sanctioning and get it to be uh, you know, more common sense and more what we wanted. And instead of just trying to momentarily escape it, we, we tried to work within it. And now here you are in a much more serious situation, like a serious situation where it's a health risk to your staff and your fighters and just people in general. And your response is to do the exact opposite, is to go running away from regulation. All right, these people say you can't have it there. Let's last minute scramble to look for somewhere else that you can have it. And at no point does it seem to be that the UFC is even considering the health risks to the fighters. Because I don't care what you're saying about taking people's temperatures. and everything. I mean the testing for the coronavirus has been one of the big problems as far as containing the outbreak, like being able to get the test kits, being able to do the test, get timely results, all that kind of stuff. The Brazilian commission said before that they weren't going to do the test or couldn't do the test. And even if you are testing people you know, as close to the competition and stuff as you can, it's not like you're going to catch every single instance in that with that method. Plus, you're taking all these fighters, you're, you're flying them in from all over the place, having them fight, housing them in close quarters where, you know, as we talked about before, you, when the UFC fighters are all together in a host hotel – they share a hotel conference room as workout rooms. They share saunas to cut weight. They, they're, they're riding together in vans. They're sharing locker rooms on fight night. They're, just, they're constantly in contact with each other and with the staff and with just whoever else might happen to be in an airport or a hotel. And then after you have them all in this competition in which it's like the most intimate form of competition available in the sports world pretty much, then you send them all back to from whence they came. You know, send them all back through a bunch of airports where if they did get it from somebody else, now they're going to go and spread it in whatever their their flights on the way home, their communities, their gyms, their families. And it's like, and if you do all this just with your show must go on mentality and you end up killing Charles Oliveira's Nana or something as a result, or like a bunch of fighters come out of this and it's like, hey, six fighters from UFC Brasilia end up testing positive for coronavirus or whatever – that's going to be a disaster, man. Like, I don't think the UFC has really thought through all the way to that possibility, which is that you can't say you, there's no way for you to eliminate the risk of something like that happening. And since everybody else is already shut down, it would be a PR nightmare. Like maybe the biggest threat we've seen to the UFC since it got kicked off pay-per-view back in the dark days. If the main sports story becomes, hey, remember this one organization that was the only one still insisting on running events after everybody else shut down, after everybody else was practicing social distancing and whatever, and they did the exact opposite thing. Yeah, they got a bunch of people infected with it, and then those people got other people infected. And the UFC, in its greed and short-sightedness, has made the situation worse than it had to be. That would be a, a complete catastrophe. Yeah, and I really don't understand – why? You know what I mean? Aside from the, we all want to make as much money as possible, just because you look at the schedule, and it's not like the world is going to fall apart if you don't do Kevin Lee versus Charles Oliveira, right. or, or Tyron Woodley against Leon Edwards, or uh, Francis Ngannou versus the Biggie Boy. You still got a little bit more than a month to figure out what you want to do for Habib versus Tony. To me, that would be the biggest uh issue if i was the ufc i would i'd be like all right well maybe we don't do all these these fight nights but let's see what we can do to try to get habib versus tony to come off you know even in an empty arena it's you know somewhere but let's take the time to make sure that we can do do it safely and so like the the insistence on trying to do as many of these other fight night events as possible is one of the things that i think is strange and obviously it takes a little bit of speculation to try to figure out why, but you know, we, we hearken back to, to just last month when the news broke from the New York Post that uh, WME had, had taken all of this money from the UFC's coffers to pay stock shareholder dividends to all these kind of uh, celebrity investors that they had. It was a pretty big story at the time. And you know, it was reported that it left the UFC with about $50 million of operating costs in its, in its bank account, essentially. Uh, and, and so I wonder, like, is, the, is it possible 
that that payout to investors kind of left the UFC so shorthanded with money that they legitimately feel like they need to put on all of these events or else they are going to bottom out in some way. Yeah, but even if that is your main motivation, and maybe it is. I mean, uh, Endeavor also owns the PBR bull riding thing, and that's they've been trying to go ahead with that. So maybe that is a sign that Endeavor is, uh, either feels like it, it can't or won't shut down even for a few weeks. But don't you think you also have to look at the big picture here? Because you, if you think it will be bad for your business to shut down for a few weeks, it seems like it could be so much worse to not shut down and run into exactly the kind of problems that everybody is saying that is why you should shut down. Yeah. You know, like, and I know like we hear the same thing from fighters where they're going like, Hey, I'm young and healthy. I'm not that worried about it. It's like, well, first of all, you'd be compromising your immune system when you make weight and all this other stuff. So, and all the travel. So maybe you won't be as healthy as you think, but also it's not just about you. I mean, that, that's the thing I think that we're, not so much finding out as being reminded of this. Like people have talked about how this crisis doesn't so much uh, break anything that exists in, within like countries and their established societies and governments so much as it shows you what's already been broken. I think we're seeing that in America a little bit, but I also think that you see it even in like a, a, a more, a much smaller scale with something like the UFC. Like the UFC has always had this mentality of, that it's not super concerned with the health and well-being of the fighters or the community at large. The the thing is to get this money and to keep the the train rolling. And then you come up with a serious situation where everybody is being told like, hey, look, we know there are things you want to do, things you had planned, and we're all going to have to take a little bit of a hit here and it's going to be unpleasant, but it's going to be so much worse if we don't do it. And everybody – you know, for the most part, it's a little bit encouraging to see the extent to which people are willing to do that. Like, hey, all you see it all over the place. And then when you see people or institutions that aren't willing to do it, it's so much more glaringly obvious that like how irresponsible they are. And I think that that's the risk that the UFC runs here is that like we talked about uh, on the Power Hour on Friday. While you think it might be a good news to have the airwaves all to yourself because no other sports are running and you get to throw your whole thing up on ESPN and maybe a bunch of people who didn't care about the sport watch because you're the only live sports on TV, it also puts the spotlight on you as, hey, why are you the only sport still operating? Could it be just because like you don't give a shit? Because you know the NBA, of course they're going to shut down. And you think the, the Pelicans spend all this money and resources on uh, Zion Williamson, they want to risk something happening to him? Hell no. But the UFC looks at its own fighters and things like, ah, you know, they're interchangeable. We can always get more. Yeah, and obviously the, uh, the biggest item on the list or the most uh, pertinent item on the list at this point is UFC London, which is still scheduled to go down uh, next weekend, March 21st, although – Currently says venue TBA city TBA on the Wikipedia page that I'm looking at now. So nice. That's (laughs) that's a little bit of a a couple of big issues to leave up in the air. But that's what we're going to be talking about in round number three. That starts right now. Ben, I would say potentially the weirdest news last week when we were trying to figure out what was going to befall the UFC's upcoming schedule. You know, it was kind of a roller coaster ride leading up to UFC Brasilia. At first, we didn't know if the event was going to go off. The UFC canceled its media days on Thursday. And so uh, it kind of left us hanging for a little while about what was going to actually become of that event. Ultimately, of course, uh, because of government regulation, they end up having UFC Brasilia in the empty arena. But at the same time that they announced that, when they announced that they were going to move uh, the Columbus event to the Apex Arena, that they were going to move the Portland event to the Apex Arena. Of course, that stuff now we know is, isn't going to happen as intended. But the weirdest part about all of that, to me, was that they said UFC London is going to go off unchanged. And of course, over the next you know week or so, we have seen a lot of changes in this event. But as as we sit here today... The UFC, we think, is still planning to go forward with uh, this UFC Fight Night card, UFC Fight Night 171. Although, as I said at the end of round two, it says venue TBA, city TBA on the Wikipedia page. And you have eight fights 
that were originally scheduled for this card that have been canceled completely. You've had Leon Edwards, who was one half of the main event against Tyron Woodley. He's not going to be there. Uh, so right now, if you look at the announced fight card for this upcoming fight night event, here's what it says. Main event, Tyron Woodley versus TBA. Middleweight fight, Kevin Holland versus TBA. Middleweight fight, Darren Stewart versus Marvin Vittori. Light heavyweight fight, Paul Craig versus Ryan Spawn. Heavyweight fight, Jake Collier versus TBA. So not nice. a lot is known about what, if at all, this this event can go off, which just makes me wonder, man, like what what are we doing here? What is going on? Yeah, and also uh, Marvin Vittori, is he coming in from, from Italy for this? Yeah, he's he already in the U.S. I, well, I think he traveled. As far as I know, most of the people traveled to to London already, right? And they had been there. And now we either maybe though maybe that's why so many of these fights got canceled. You just can't get the majority of these people back. But uh, well, yeah, well, and you know, uh, we got to talk about this tweet from Ariel Hawani that he sent out, I believe, Sunday morning, uh, and he was, had a screenshot and he said, "This is the email that the UFC is sending out to managers and fighter reps." about trying to fill up this fight says quote because we are moving this event to the u.s next weekend there will be a number of open spots on that card if you have anyone currently under ufc contract from bantamweight to welterweight who wants a short notice fight please let me know if you have any ufc vets or fighters ready for ufc on a week's notice please let me know do not email me about anyone who is not a u.s citizen or does not have a current p1 visa thanks so basically that is the ufc sending out an emergency call for warm bodies yeah like we don't we don't care so much who like we don't care uh, if it makes sense for these two people to fight each other or if anybody is going to care about these two people fighting each other. We need warm bodies on this fight card and they need to be people who can reasonably get licensed and everything on a week's notice. That's our, our main concern here. And that to me tells you like it really just highlights what are you actually doing when you're trying to scramble to keep this card together? Because you had to take off you know, almost everybody on the card. You're taking like, who, here are the few people we think we can still use. And everybody else is just filler. Like we, it's just, we need to have some human being wearing a pair of gloves that say UFC on them, punch another human being wearing some gloves that say UFC on them in a cage somewhere this weekend. And that is all we care about. And that to me is like really kind of highlights the absurdity of trying to keep the event together because you're not at this point, like you've given up on keeping the, like this event together on giving us what was promised at this. Now you're just saying like, we'll, we'll give you something, whatever we can find. Like, but we feel it is so important to do that, whatever we can find that we are willing to risk other people's health. Yeah. That email strikes such a bizarre tone. Just like, (laughs) <laughs> send us anyone you have who who is uh between these weights who may be got their paperwork and what does it mean at this point to be ufc ready you know if we're bringing in people that have like five fights from the contender series under normal circumstances like what does it mean during a pandemic in 2020 to be quote-unquote ufc ready like essentially anybody in the gym right like <laughs> anybody in the gym who's willing to do it yeah well and that's the thing too is that as we've talked about before, uh, with related issues, fighters are already of such a mentality and are already kind of desperate uh, a, a lot of times financially to where they will do things that are bad ideas. Like they will put their health at risk or they will step up and be like, hey, the UFC needs some people. Here's going to be my chance. This pandemic is going to swing the door wide open for me. Let me go in there, make my 20 and 20 or whatever to, to fight for the UFC they will do a lot of things that are bad ideas if you let them. And that's why you're supposed to have all these other apparatuses in there to keep them from doing those things. And it seems like the UFC's response when the, when that apparatus tells them the whole thing is a bad idea is they go, well, all right, let's, let's see what they say somewhere else. Let's go commission shopping or just go somewhere where we don't have to worry about that. Maybe we find an Indian casino somewhere where we can put on these fights. And to me, it's just like, it would be a weird thing to do even for a major fight card and to do it for something like this, where it's just UFC fight night content and you still just feel like it's absolutely unthinkable to just not do it at a time when all the other sports have made that decision. That's kind of shocking to me. Yeah. And it throws, you know, not, not only is the the rest of the world in this weird kind of stasis almost, but 
it throws the entire MMA world into this kind of weird chaos where like you and I are media members. We don't know if there's going to be a damn event this weekend. We don't know if we're supposed to like carry on as though there would be an event and like start running normal pre-fight stuff. I don't even know that if that would be like a, a, a responsible thing to do in any, you know, even if they do end up having the fights. And, you know, if you're one of these fighters that's still on the card, if you're Tyron Woodley or Kevin Holland or Paul Craig, like, I guess you got to put your head down and continue to train like you're going to have a fight. But like, well, just waiting for your manager to call you and tell you like what continent to go to. Like what? It's just bizarre. The whole thing is is completely and utterly bizarre. And now that we know it's not going to happen in London, it can't happen in Nevada. What do you think happens next? Like, does are we doing these uh, UFC events on a barge? Are we going to to Russia somewhere? Or is it like, will the Texas State Athletic Commission put these on? I have to imagine that there would be some public outcry if you tried to do this event anywhere in America. I don't know about other regions, but like, what happens here? Yeah, I don't know, man, because it. it it is hard to imagine any athletic commission being like, yeah, sure. We'll get on board with this. This seems like a good idea. It also seems hard to imagine that you, even if it might be easier, if you moved the whole event to another country where you don't have some of those same concerns, that involves a whole other thing. Like how how are you going to get everybody there? How are you going to get them back? You know, are you going to end up getting everybody quarantined in Abu Dhabi because you just had to have this USC? And at some point, are you going to spend so much damn money doing that that it's not worth it anymore? Like, I don't know. It, it seems really bizarre. And it seems especially like at the rate the the news is changing about this, it seems like it's more and more likely that you'll end up just not being able to do it anywhere. But the problem is at this point, if you end up getting just shut out by all possible commissions and venues, if not the United States government itself, then you don't even get whatever attaboy points the other sports leagues got, like the NBA or something for saying, you know what, hey, we got a case, we're going to stop this, uh, or the NCAA tournament or anybody else who said kind of proactively, we are making this decision to, to suspend our events because it's just out of like social responsibility that we feel like we cannot continue right now and we'll pick it up later. And at least then, even if people are disappointed in everything, they're going like, yeah, hey, we understand why you made that decision and it looks a lot better when everybody else is making the same decision. And if the UFC has it forced upon them, then you still don't look any – you don't get the money that you were trying to make. You don't get to have your events, but you also look like assholes because you were trying to do it up until the, the last possible minute anyway, which is what the UFC has done. This whole – like UFC keeps telling us we won't do anything that we don't have to do by the government and that's exactly how this has played out. The event in Brazil only went on without a crowd because the local government there wouldn't allow it. The USC still wanted to do this thing in London with a crowd until the government there wouldn't allow it. Wanted to bring everybody back to Nevada until the government would – like it's not making any proactive decisions to pull back out of concern for health and safety here. And like that, that's going to be so much worse a look than just saying like, you know what? We're calling it off for at least a couple of weeks and then we'll reevaluate. Yeah. If you had to guess, you think this UFC London thing happens anywhere? No, yeah. I'm going to say no. That's what I think I'm, within the next two days, I think we're the whole situation just in general in the United States is going to look different. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I think too. I don't think you end up having this anywhere. Uh, and I do, I think you're right. I think it ends up in retrospect looking like the UFC acted extremely strangely in this entire situation. Yeah. Uh, what about just saying stuff? You got to just saying stuff for us this week? Yeah, I got to just saying stuff for you. All right, let's hear it. Jed. In 1881, John L. Sullivan boarded a barge on the uh, 43rd Street Pier in Manhattan, and that barge was towed up the Hudson River to a small wooded island where a bunch of torches were set up, and then the torches uh, had like a backing behind them so that the harbor police cruising by on ships wouldn't be able to see the light. And there he got into a makeshift ring and battered a man named John Flood into, you know, pretty much total unconsciousness. I guess I'm just saying. It's been, you know, what, 140 years since since all that stuff happened? Still, the UFC out here, a multi-billion dollar company owned by a mega entertainment and sports conglomerate. And we're still out here just looking for the right barge 
that we can push onto a right wooded island where the harbor cops won't bother us. I'm just saying maybe time really is a flat circle, Chad. Maybe it all comes back around. Just saying. Just saying. Wow, that was actually incredibly profound. Well, don't expect that every week. No, I've never expected it before. I didn't expect it this week. And yet we got here, we got like kind of a profound just saying stuff out of you. There you go. I'm retiring now on that note. (laughs) Ben, this week, I'm just saying, and obviously this is a minute concern given that everything else that's going on, but what are we going to do on this show if there's no fighting for eight weeks? Okay. Maybe a spin through the greatest MMA events of all time? See, this is what I was thinking, especially as people start complaining about not having MMA to watch. Man, we got the entire library streamed to us and we've been told forever that it's Netflix for fight fans. Maybe now is the time where it really comes in useful. Yeah. I mean, obviously here on the CME, we'll continue to update and talk about any news that happens, but if push comes to shove and the whole landscape goes silent, maybe we could do a lot worse than coming uh, back to break down some of the great events in UFC history, MMA history that the, that the fight that the CME uh, podcast was not around for. Yep. I'm all for it. Kind of like and a I retro. We, drunk. we we give it. Well, that would make it quite a sort of a retro CME uh, experience. You know, like how how does the CME react to the to Tank Abbott when he shows up in the UFC? Maybe we can do those oh, shows. Shit. Go back and we do those shows. I'm just don't saying. threaten me with a good time, Chad Dundas. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> That is going to do it for this week's show. Thanks, everybody, for joining us in what are unusual and difficult circumstances. Obviously, uh, we will try to keep you guys updated. We're going to try to keep the content coming for the Patreon and for the weekly CME proper. We're just going to have to uh, be a little bit creative about how all that stuff goes down. Uh, We're going to find out what happens with UFC London this weekend. Will it happen? Will it not happen? Will it get moved? Who knows? We are both on record saying we are somewhat skeptical about it, but uh, I guess we will be back next week to let you guys know what ultimately did happen and to talk about it. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. The kids watched American Tale last night. Oh, nice. Yeah. How's it hold up? You know what? It's uh, it's always a little bit weird to go watch, go back and watch those old cartoons that were like made before yeah. computers and whatnot, or like before uh, the current technology of computer animation took hold because they always look super different. Um, occasionally just casually racist. Yeah, yeah. My kids were pretty into it though. My kids were into American Tail. I, I was surprised. I didn't think it was going to hold their interest, but they watched the whole thing. So one night down. Perfect. <laughs>